EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Well, once again, it's time to go inside EMS. It's the Chris and Kelly show. I love that it's the Chris and Kelly show, other than the Kelly and Chris show. But uh, I'm sure he's got something to say about it. Here he is, our good friend, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, what's going on down there in world-famous Pitkin, Louisiana? Oh, man, I am I am prepping for a national registry exam for my EMT class tomorrow. So oh, it's tomorrow. I am sitting here busily shuffling, shuffling papers and setting up stations and everything. We'll have the uh, exam team coming here and... And uh, check my guys off, and hopefully they'll all be ready to go test their computer exam next week. But, hey, I just want to go on the record. I'm fine with it being the Chris and Kelly show. It's oh, Age Before Beauty, that? right? How about that? Age Before, age before Beauty, right? Well, I Isn't think that, that I, got you, I got you in the age, and I think I got you in the beauty section. But I do want to hit <laughs> this really quick. We are, in, we are in the Kilted to Kick Cancer season. And yeah, we're coming, coming up uh, September the 1st. We'll be... Uh, Kilted to get cancer. I think it's our eighth year doing it, and uh, we'll have a nice set of prize packages this year for the top fundraisers. And uh, if you're not familiar with the concept, uh, we go kilted for the entire month of September uh, and use that as our segue to talk to people about prostate cancer awareness and male-specific cancer. So when people ask you, hey, man, what's under the kilt? You can tell them it's a one in seven chance of prostate cancer. That's awesome. Um, So that's what we're doing. And since I'm Italian and I don't have a tartan, I will be using a, a tablecloth from the Italian restaurants here That's in, perfect. The, in the Italian section of St. Louis. And, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and say that as well. Now, there is a way for people to donate to uh, Team Kelly Grayson, and uh, yep. even more money will get a prostate exam from you. Isn't that correct? Don't they? No, that's not true. Yeah, that's that that's that's only for the premium donors. Oh, I that's see. That's only for for five hundred five hundred dollar donation or and more. Up, you get the prostate oh, exam by, by my surrogate, Chris Sabalero. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you so much. <laughs> but as we get closer, we'll talk about how they can donate to your team. Yes, we will. And like you said, it's been the eighth year and a very very good cause and something that. Uh, uh, we all need to be aware of. So, but I think we got a really great discussion today, Kelly. You and I have kind of talked about this a couple of yeah. times already. But I'm going to kick it to you, uh, so you can uh, kind of brief the folks, and then we got a guest who's going to come in and join us. Yeah, Chris, uh, have you heard? Uh, I'm sure if you followed social media, you've heard about the uh, the folks that have been dropping from occupational exposure to to fentanyl uh, at at overdose scenes. Uh, I I myself know. Uh, a dude that works in the next town that dates an ER nurse that's cousins with the responder who actually flopped out on the scene because he was exposed to fentanyl, uh, or so we'd hear it told. Um, there, there's a lot of, of uh, fear-mongering going on, um, and we're not quite sure what it's being caused by, um, and we're not sure whether these people are actually being exposed to a, an opiate or not, but the science says otherwise, and we're, we've got our own resident expert here, Dr. David Tan, 
an associate professor and chief of EMS in the Division of Emergency Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and board certified in emergency medicine and EMS medicine. And Dr. Tan is also the president-elect of the National Association of EMS Physicians. He's going to talk to us about the recent uh, position paper and guidance on occupational exposure to fentanyl at overdose scenes. Dr. Tan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I got to tell you, Doc, it's always a pleasure to have and, and, you know, learn from your wisdom and your knowledge. And I think the first question that I want to have for you is, you know, the American College of Medical Toxicology and, of course, uh, the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology wrote a position paper that really kind of talked about this transdermal fentanyl exposure. Then, of course, uh, you know, uh, your organization came out in support of that. And I think maybe just from your standpoint, you know, uh, of your understanding, maybe just give the listeners an overview as to what this position paper and then the support of the organization is really about. Yeah, sure. Um, what I think what ACMT and AACT did uh, was really try to to describe, quantify, and address the growing concern among first responders about occupational exposure to synthetic opiates like fentanyl or carfentanil. And you know, of course, in in the popular press, they keep referring to carfentanil as elephant tranquilizer, you know, and, they, and they, they, they really make it sound like if you look at it wrong, you will drop unconscious. And so, there, you know, like, like everything, there's probably a little mix of, of, of truth in it somewhere. And um, the fact of the matter is there is, it's not zero risk. There is some risk to occupational exposure of synthetic opiates. But I think what this position paper does is it really puts it into some context. And it says, here are the ways that you can legitimately be exposed to things like fentanyl, carfentanil, other synthetic opiates and analogs out there. And here are the, the risk factors that go along with it that we do know plays a part in clinically significant signs or symptoms. And just normal, brief incidental contact, I think the bottom line is, that it is not going to cause you to become sick and certainly not going to cause you to, to keel over unconscious all of a sudden on the scene. That's probably one of the biggest take-home messages from that paper. Well, Dr. Tan, one of the things we, we keep hearing, especially from law enforcement-based uh, uh, awareness classes on the risk of this, most of them are basing their their teaching on on the CDC guidelines and the DEA uh, guidance on the issue that came out uh, sometime last year around November. Um, but uh, most of that was based on empirical data, and it, and it wasn't really backed up with, with hard science and, and studies. Um, what, how does the, the new guidelines from, uh, uh, from our toxicology agencies differ from, from those? Well, you know, surprisingly enough, they're they're not that far off. In fact, I I recently compared the CDC NIOSH um, guidelines compared with with the recent ACMT AACT paper, um, and they're not that far off. Basically, what the toxicology position paper does is it says there are there are ways that you can get exposed, and there are of certain things that can cause increased, say, dermal absorption. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the bigger threat, actually, 
for clinically significant development of signs and symptoms is inhalational. Yeah. And honestly, that's even that's even less common for normal routine everyday EMS exposures. So for law enforcement, for EMS, you may have, again, brief incidental contact uh, with fentanyl or its analogs. It, in the presence of intact skin even, it, it will not cause uh, significant symptoms. And so using uh, standard PPE like nitrile gloves, for example, is 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 fine. It, it's it's uh, more than enough protection for dermal exposure, skin exposure. And then they, mm-hmm. they do say that if you, if there is a chance that you're going to have a mucous membrane exposure, or if there's a lot on on surfaces or contacts in an in, in enclosed space, for example, then they do recommend things like fluid resistant coverings and coveralls and eye protection. You know, so doctor, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people that are feeling a lot of symptoms. And when we think about the opiate toxidromes, I mean, how does this relate to that? Well, something that uh, the paper also does a good job of is reminding people what a true uh, symptomatology or signs or symptoms to look for would be if somebody did have a, clinical, a clinically significant exposure to an opiate. And it simply reminds everyone what that toxidrome is. And, and I know that you've got a, a very wide base of listeners with all kinds of different uh, levels of experience and training. So for those in the audience that may not be familiar with that word, toxidrome simply means a syndrome, a uh, constellation of symptoms that suggests a syndrome uh, particular to a given toxin. So, for example, what I mean by that is the, the opiate toxidrome is pinpoint pupils, altered level of consciousness to the point of coma, and respiratory depression, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if I, if I were to tell you that a patient is unconscious, but that's all I told you, well, that could be a thousand different things. But if I told you that your patient is unconscious and also has um, apnea or slow breathing and pinpoint pupils, well, you put all those three things together and you have a toxidrome, something that is strongly suggestive of an opiate overdose. And so when you read the position paper, it it does a couple of things. One, it reminds you of what clinically significant significant exposure should look like. And it also tells you that, you know, we should probably reserve giving Narcan to people who actually have the opiate toxidrome. Because after all, Narcan is specific to the opiate toxidrome. So we've all read reports where uh, patients or responders were exhibiting symptoms of rapid breathing or feeling a little bit off or lightheaded, and they were given Narcan. Now, will it hurt them? Probably not. Narcan, as we all know, is a pretty safe drug. Um, But it's also not helping anything and contributing, I think, to some of the misunderstanding and maybe even the mischaracterization of what an opiate overdose really looks like. 
Yeah, as, as we've said on the show before, Dr. Tan, uh, you know, uh, addicts take uh, opiates to induce a pleasant stupor. So if they're uh, pleasantly stuporous but still breathing effectively, it's not an overdose. It's it's just a dose. And and right. all the all the symptoms that, that most of these people who are, are suspected of occupational exposures just flies in the face of what we know about opiate toxicity. Um, one of the things that strikes me is, is where are the reports – of drug dealers falling out and having these horrific occupational exposures. Um, because we've, you know, presumably if you're going to get an inhalation exposure, uh, you are far, far more likely to get it in a place where you're, you're compiling and cutting and, and packaging the drug and the particles are in the air, not from just from, from being near someone who's been casually using it. So if it is that big of a problem, uh, where are all the drug dealers, uh, falling out dead from, from exposure to fentanyl and fentanyl analogs? We haven't seen them. Right. And that's a really good point. And I, and I, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that question. And you're right. It, you would seem or you would think that that would be the greatest area of risk. Now, you know, having said that, um, when you talk about these responders uh, having signs and symptoms of being exposed to something, I, you know, I, I have no doubt that they're feeling something. And I don't want to discount the possibility that they've been exposed to some kind of substance that's making them sick. Uh, I, I don't I don't doubt that at all, but I think what we want to do is focus on the fact that whatever it is that they're exposed to, it probably is not the fentanyl or its analogs because it just doesn't fit the picture of the opiatoxidrome. So maybe it's some other chemicals in the in the in the house or on the scene. Maybe it's some some other thing or substance that's contributing to their illness. But I don't know that Narcan is going to reverse it, and I, and I don't know that we can blame it on some pills or white powder that happens to be sitting there undisturbed. Yeah, and I think that brings up a lot of points. And, you know, as Kelly was kind of giving his, you know, dose analogy that he's done before, one of the things that I started thinking is, I mean, how do we really, how should we really treat these calls when we get them? I mean, when, when I was taught to give Narcan, it really was in, in the presence of respiratory depression. So if we get on scene and we get a call of an overdose and we find somebody that has taken a dose of heroin, I mean, do we wake them up with this Narcan? Are we transporting these patients to the hospital so, you know, physicians can now give them the dose? I mean, do we need to rethink, Dr. Tan, our whole way of how we're managing this patient population? Yeah, and you know, I think that's a really good point to bring up, especially now in the face of so many uh, non-EMS uh, responders given the ability to give the Narcan, which I think overall is a good thing. You know, that that, that may be a whole different conversation as to the merits of that, but I, but I think most police agencies in particular have adopted the, the fact that they're not there just to protect, but also to serve, which... which most agencies, most modern agencies have interpreted as giving people another chance to get treatment of some kind for their uh, substance use disorder. So I, I think what's what's important to say is that, to, to remind our EMS responders especially, that, you know, it's not, the, the point of Narcan is not so much to wake them up as it is to get them to start breathing again. And I think that's something that we emphasize when we do these law enforcement training classes as well. When police officers are 
are taught to give it is really that the emergency is over once they start to breathe again. Whether they wake up or not is is not our goal, really. It's that we want them to get breathe, start breathing again. So yeah, I think I think that is a good point that we have to rethink what our goals of care really are, uh, and it is to restore life into them by getting them to start having normal respirations. So, Dr. Tam, what safety precautions uh, would you recommend providers take to to limit their potential exposure, uh, either dermal or or inhalation? Is there anything special that we need, or or does the equipment on our trucks uh, uh, is that going to be sufficient? I, I think in in um, in agreement with the position paper from our colleagues in toxicology, uh, I think it is fair to say that the vast majority of our EMS providers have exactly what they need on the trucks to deal with the vast majority of these types of calls. When you have the presence of fentanyl, heroin, any other opiate, mm-hmm. or, or synthetic or otherwise on the scene, it's always a good idea to have the appropriate PPE. And we all use gloves, at least we should, when we're on the scene and handling the patient's belongings, the patient themselves, their clothing, et cetera, moving things around the house maybe to get to the patient. It's always a good idea to have gloves on. Um, you know, I, I, I recently heard this, um, uh, this new rumor going around that maybe the nitrile gloves we're using isn't sufficient. Maybe we need to go to butyl rubber gloves of some kind for, for chemical exposure. Oh, interesting. And I just think that, yeah, and, and, and for that, I just heard that earlier today from an agency asking me that question, and I'm like, you know, from everything that we know of today, the CDC, the NIOSH, the toxicology recommendations are that nitrile gloves, which the vast majority of services use, are sufficient. Uh, the, the official recommendation is to be at least five mils thick, um, a fairly standard size, but even then, they they caution that the thickness of the glove doesn't always predict the the protective ability of it. Uh, rather, that it's better to make sure that it fits well. And uh, they do recommend unpowdered gloves because the powder can absorb some of the uh, narcotic residue and then contribute to its absorption or or contamination when you're doffing them, interestingly enough. But the unpowdered nitrile, which so many services already use, really is sufficient uh, for for brief incidental contact. Um, Now, obviously, if you're going to be a hazmat team cleaning up a large surface area and large amounts of this stuff, well, the hazmat team is going to have their own um, PPE uh, sufficient for the task at hand. But what we're talking about are your normal everyday EMS responders and the need for specialized equipment. And right now, from what we know today, super special, um, really expensive equipment just is not needed. Now, I, w- I will say that for the uh, le- even less common uh, case where there may be aerosolized opiate in the air in the form of a powder or particulate material, then the recommendation is to at least use an N95 mask or a P100 respirator, which, again, most services are accustomed to having on their truck, more likely for TB exposures, right? But that same TB mask, N95, is going to be just fine for particulate matters. Now, it's important to note that the normal surgical mask is not sufficient to filter out particulate. 
So the official recommendation is if you really do think that that's a problem, then have an N95 on and, and that's plenty. So, you know, Dr. Tan, I think you've given us a lot of great information. I'm certainly glad that you were here to share this expertise with us. One of the things that you said, and you really kind of took the thunder away because I was getting ready to ask you this question was, you made the mention that just because somebody is having these symptoms on scene, not to necessarily treat them with Narcan. So what would your recommendation be that if someone was in this scene and they started to feel these types of symptoms, how should a provider go about treating their peer? You know, my, my advice to them would be uh, the same advice I would give, say, if I were getting a medical control call in the hospital or if I were actually on the scene with them. And that is to treat them, manage them symptomatically and give them supportive care. Because there are so many thousands of different chemicals out there, especially volatile chemicals, that may cause someone to start feeling ill or dizzy or nauseated or what have you. Uh, Common things like uh, just even carbon monoxide in the air for whatever reason or actual other volatile chemicals or chemical fumes. And I think the best thing to do would be to remove them from what is thought to be the source of these fumes or gases or whatever is making them sick ventilate, get them out the fresh air, support their airway, breathing, and circulation, just like we would give the same advice to anybody who's having these weird symptoms. And I think it would be important to try and identify a different kind of toxidroma if you can, because if you can identify that suddenly three or four or five responders are having the exact same symptoms of, say, tachycardia, hypertension, dilated pupils, well, then that that suggests, right, some kind of sympathomimetic toxin mm-hmm. or something like, like amphetamine or cocaine or something else like that, or a mimic of some kind in the air or in the environment that made them sick. So what can we do for that? Well, nothing specifically other than, again, supportive care and trying to make sure that whatever the source of exposure or contamination is, is no longer getting other people sick and having the right PPE for whatever the risk is deemed on that scene. So I I think it's important to to note again that if people start coming down with symptoms on a scene to simply say, let's remove people from the scene, let's, let's try to find out what we're exposed to, but not to necessarily jump to the conclusion that it's an opiate and just give everyone Narcan. You know, when, when you say remove remove them from the scene and try to figure out what they were exposed to, that, that exposes another thing that you, you see missing from all the media reports of these incidental exposures. Um, no one no one mentions anyone testing positive for opiates after, after experiencing these symptoms. Um, to me, it would seem that that's a pretty simple thing uh, if you think you were exposed to something, maybe we should have a standard protocol for post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, like just like we do with bloodborne pathogens. We 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 have blood drawn. If you think your subordinates at your agency were were exposed to uh, to a drug, um, why not do a uh, drugs of abuse screen or a tox screen at the hospital after uh, after they've gotten treatment? At least then we might know uh, what it was they were exposed to. Right. And 
You know, that might have happened. So many of these reports, and I'm sure like you, I've read dozens of these reports in, in the in the media about uh, possible exposure from first responders. And they don't they, know much they about all, anything. <laughs> they, they, they don't. Well, what they say is that they were treated and released at a local hospital. Well, we don't know what happened in the hospital. Perhaps they they were tested. We just we just don't know. But I think you bring up a good point in that if we believe that incidents like this, like like these, are going to continue and become more common, it probably would be a good idea for agencies to begin thinking about some post exposure protocol whereby their personnel can get the necessary and required Indeed. workers' comp evaluation and get may be tested with blood or a drugs of abuse screen or whatever to, to see what they were, in fact, exposed to. Let's try to find out and put together what our colleagues are feeling on the scene. Because, again, I want to I emphasize I'm, I'm certainly not downplaying or belittling the fact that some responders are feeling something on the scene and they legitimately feel sick. I get it. So let's try to find out what it is. Let's give them support they need. But let's be careful about labeling it as a fentanyl yeah, exposure sure. if it doesn't match the picture. I think that's all that the position paper is trying to say, and I think that's probably all we're trying to advocate, is let's be smart about it and find out what's really going on. I gotcha. And, and hey, folks, there you have it right from the horse's mouth. When you, when you uh, educate your colleagues, when you're talking about this, like Chris and I do, uh, uh, two guys on a truck uh, rapping about the, the issues of EMS, I urge you to, to share this position paper and this guidance from uh, ACMT and AACT, and, and now has been endorsed by the, uh, uh, the Poison Control Association. So uh, this has been uh, stamped of approval from all of the major toxicology organizations in the United States. Uh, and it is good information. It is scientifically based, and it will, it will alleviate much of your concerns. And another thing, Chris, that that I I kind of worry about is is you know there's there's a tendency of many in our profession to kind of judge addicts uh, and and think of them as as beneath their their uh, uh, beneath them or or unworthy of of treatment and, and compassion. Uh, and I think this even ramps it up even more if the if the addict or the scene is is deemed a potential danger uh, to the paramedics. Uh, so I want to I'm I'm glad that this this new position paper is out there. Hopefully, it'll alleviate some of that fear and mess, make it less likely for the next uh, overdose patient to be treated like a leper or a dangerous object. Yeah, and I think that but, one of the things, yeah. and I think that one of the things that we've got to think about too is that as this as this comes about, we really need to probably think our whole our whole paradigm of how we're treating uh, opiate patients. And again, I, I agree with our mindset, but you know, with that said, Dr. Tan, it's always great, you know, promises you'll come back because you're a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, there's a lot of listeners out there that can benefit from, and I apologize that, you know, Kelly's got that Southern accent, but, you know, come on <laughs> back and join us for uh, another show and, and let's pick another topic. We've tried to get you on a couple of times and sometimes we've had some schedule challenges, but you're always welcome here to share your knowledge with us. Thanks. You're too kind. I'd love to come back. This was fun. Thank you very much. All right. 
Well, hey, you've heard what Chris and I think. You've heard what Dr. Tan had to say. We'd like to know what you think. Share with us your concerns, comments, and questions at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself, co-host Chris Cevallero and Dr. David Tan, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.